1: Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Today, we've got messages for those of you that feel like you're stuck in the mire. You know what it feels like. You're out there trying to get things done and nothing seems to move. And yet there's one more meeting and one more meeting and one more task. And you just wonder, how much time are we wasting trying to get a simple thing done? Well, if that's where you are today, we have some solutions for you. Certainly, we have an analysis that's going to help you understand why. If you're a leader, we're going to show you what to do to stop it. And if you're just an average citizen in the organization, we're also going to give you some clues about what to do. My guest today is Haya Griva, goes by Huggy Rao. He's the Atoll McBean Professor of Organizational Behavior and Human Resources at Stanford University's Graduate School of Business. Now, he and Bob Sutton authored a book uh, that we're going to talk about today called The Friction Project. But prior to that, they authored a book called Scaling Up, which has been a massively big hit. Um, and it featured his best books to read all over everywhere. Financial Times, Inc. Magazine, Amazon, Forbes, Washington Post, you name the list. Now, Huggy's teaching responsibilities are both MBA students as well as executives in leading, and his topics are about leading organizational change, building customer-focused cultures, and organizational design. And he's consulted with lots of companies running executive workshops, Aon Corporation, British Petroleum, Semex. GE, Hearst Corporation, IBM, Mass Mutual, James Hardy Company, the list could go on, as well as a bunch of nonprofits like the American Cancer Society.
2: Huggy, welcome. Thank you so very much, Wanda, for inviting me to this podcast. I'm very much looking forward to it.
1: I'm looking forward to it too. And I have a feeling everybody else is looking forward to it, because I think this problem of feeling stuck in the muck is common, but before I say that, I want to know, so you and Bob have this brilliantly successful book called Scaling Up Excellence. You know, congratulations, well done. Thank you. And here you are teaching at Stanford, executive ed classroom. What, what problem did you start seeing that you thought needed to be solved?
2: That's a great uh, uh, beginning question, Wanda, to situate our Friction Project book. Um, As you mentioned, uh, you know, Bob and I had written Scaling Up Excellence. And as we were working with the material, popularizing the material, we were obviously confronting problems of growth, which is scaling up. We were also confronting problems of spread, scaling out. And then the problem of simply getting big. So what we were dealing with at the organizational level was, how companies were scaling up, out, and big. Now, we started studying friction because the moment we started discussing these processes of up, out, and big, we very quickly ran into the problem of friction in organizations. Um, As you sort of wonderfully telegraphed in your initial setup, people all the time talked about how hard it was to scale excellence. Be it up, out, or what have you. So a couple of comments uh, from executives we taught. You know, one executive said, I work in a frustration factory. And <laughs> another guy says, Professor, we've got more pilots than American Airlines, alluding to pilot projects and companies, and false stops Uh, But the one that sort of hit us in the gut was an executive who looked at us and said, I'm swimming in a sea of shit. I'm barely keeping my head above water. And you expect me to show initiative and generosity? And that hit us squarely in the face. And what we quickly realized was the biggest problem in organizations was... Bad friction triggered really by a famine of time. So when you don't have much time and you have a lot of bad friction, part of what happens is people just give up. Yeah. And that's kind of how we thought, you know, let's actually think of how to make the world of work less of a grind. But as soon as we started on the project, we realized, hey, friction isn't all that all bad. Mm-hmm. Friction is like bacteria in our gut. It can be good, it can be bad. So we also began to be very attentive to the virtues of constructive friction, if you would like. Okay. So and that that that's kind of how we got into the friction project. Right. I
1: well, I think. I see, in fact, I often say to people, I'm amazed that any of my clients ever make money based on the friction, the bad friction that I see, the waste that I see. I mean, it's shocking. If they actually got rid of some of it, they might be rather stunned at their profitability. It's really quite amazing. But how do you know if friction is good or friction is bad? I mean, friction, if I'm sitting in the middle of it, friction is friction. How do I know if it's good or how do I know if it's bad?
2: So, that's a great question again. So, let's actually first define what friction is in the simplest of terms possible. Uh, The simplest way to think of friction is any obstacle to getting things done. Okay. Now, what do leaders need to do? The challenge for leaders is how do I make the right things? you know, uh, caring after customers, uh, innovating, you know, doing things above and beyond the call of duty. How do I make all of those right things easier to do? Mm -hmm. At the same time, what leaders also need to do is they need to make the wrong things harder. You know, employee wrongdoing can be easy. But the question is, how do you make all of that harder? And those are the twin challenges, really, of leaders. And when you think of making the right things easy to do and the wrong things harder to do, you quickly realize that the problem of bad friction is when obstacles in the company, they actually really prevent employees from choosing a more curious and generous version of themselves. That's what you need to do to excel at work, to scale yourself as an employee. And when obstacles proliferate and multiply, a simple thing, you know, getting an extra monitor in a company uh, takes two weeks, for example. You know, filing, uh, you know, an expense report for a $75 expense takes you 30 minutes because you got to go through like a thick set of questions. And I could go on and on. All of those basically just cause people to kind of give up. Now, what does good friction do? Or what's constructive friction? Constructive friction makes the wrong things harder to do. And what does that mean? That means, We need to put obstacles in place to slow people down so that they don't choose an overconfident and myopic version of themselves. So when they sleepwalk into choosing those versions of themselves is when you have a problem. So you got to have obstacles to slow people down. You got to figure out which obstacles to take to make it faster for people and easier psychologically for them to do the right thing.
1: All right, conceptually, that makes a ton of sense. I mean, no leader would say, I want to make the wrong things um, easy and the right things hard, of course. Um, Identifying, though, I can imagine, and dealing with that in a sea of regulation can also be a challenge. Can you give us an example of a company who has taken your friction idea, implemented it, and made some wrong things, some right things easier and some wrong things harder?
2: Let me actually uh, give you a vivid uh, illustration of a company. So this was a young team of people at AstraZeneca, which, as you full well know, is a pharmaceutical company and therefore regulate. So these 40 people, the interesting thing was they set themselves a fascinating goal of mowing the lawn. Because when, see, when people take out bad friction, the biggest problem is they think it's one and done. Mm-hmm. But taking out bad friction is exactly like mowing the lawn, right? I mean, you, you don't mow the lawn. How are you going to plant uh, new uh, fruits, flowers, and vegetables? I mean, the weeds are going to overrun. So this team of 40 young people, they really went to went up to the business of mowing the lawn. But their goal was not to save money. Their goal was to save time. And as a matter of fact, in a year or so, this group of people, they did a variety of things. So, for example, they would go to R&D at AstraZeneca and say, hey, guys, you actually discover, develop, and uh, design and deliver drugs. So let's look at all these three phases and let's see how we can give you 100,000 hours back. They saved the company 2 million hours. And to do what? Not to put it in the banks, but instead to make it easier for people to serve 4 million more customers, to run 400 more early stage experiments, run 26 late stage experiments. But the most important thing was they weren't thinking of it as subtraction, quasi subtraction Instead, they were thinking of giving employees the gift of time. Now, lest you think that this was something limited to an elite group of people who did it in a company, it actually was like a movement to mow the lawn. And in fact, when I was talking with uh, the leader of that group uh, in a podcast at Stanford, we Bob and I actually asked her, hey, uh, show us how far it penetrated. And she gave a brilliant example, I thought. Uh, apparently at AstraZeneca, you know, work begins at 8 o'clock. So people show up at 745 or thereabouts. And so what happens is you got to take your ID card, you got to swipe it. And then there's like a gate that goes up and right. down and, you know, on and we know all of that. Usually there'd be a traffic jam because people would like come in at the same time. So one day she goes to work, there's no traffic jam. And she asks the security guard, who's not even an employee of AstraZeneca. He's a contractual employee. And she says, hey, there's no traffic jam. What happened? And apparently that person told her, look, you had a world simplification day, and you're thinking of giving your employees the gift of time. And he looks at her and says, I thought I could give every employee at the headquarters a gift of half an hour a day. I've simplified the process of getting into work. I mean, just look at that. Right? Right. Just look at that. Now, just even imagine the mindset with which you go to work. You know, you're waiting. There's like a jam. Your phone's beeping. And you get the idea. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's So that's like an example of really giving people the gift of time uh, in order to do what about uh, putting in good friction? A great example is our wonderful friend, Laszlo Bott, when he was at Google. Uh, you know, people really wanted, to, everybody wanted to interview talent. And they said, this is crazy to have 33 interviews. Let's have five, six interviews and we're done. But there was a lot of demand for interviews uh, to waste the time of people and so on. What Laszlo did was he said, hey, You want more people to interview a particular candidate, you need to write a memo to them. Just asking people to do that immediately actually lowered, if you will, uh, (laughs) the number of such requests. Such a simple thing to do, you know. So hopefully that kind of gives us a sense of what good friction is and what bad friction is. Good friction is about slowing down people. Because they're not going to, we're going to, we want to prevent the wrong things from being done. Bad friction has to do with removing obstacles so that people can easily take initiative and people can be generous. That's really what makes organizations run, as you full well know.
1: Yeah, yeah. And how many times do we see meeting? After meeting, after coordination, after collaboration, after reading about it, oh, wait, we haven't made our mind, let's meet again. That's right. Somebody objects. And who's generous at the end of that? Completely.
2: So, So very well put. That's right. I mean, your goodwill just goes right out of the window after two such postponements completely, which is why what we're sort of suggesting is, leaders need to think of themselves as trustees of other people's time. So that's the reason you're doing all of this. You don't want to piss away people's time. You don't want to waste it. Uh, And the worst leaders are people who actually waste other people's time. And the most effective leaders are friction fixers, who are trustees of other people's time. Sadly, many executives, uh, you know, often in organizations, we don't screen for people with friction-fixing skills.
1: Right, right. I'm not even sure we know how to identify them. This notion of being a trustee of people's time, particularly as you look at younger generations. So some of the descriptions about Gen Z and the early millennials is fine, you can waste my time and have me do non-meaningful work. Like my biggest important thing for me right now is time, time to do the things that I really enjoy. So you're going to waste my time, then find pay me. You're going to pay me a lot for that. And so think about that it's actually not a bad strategy for for kids to be thinking about that one and it explains some of the behaviors we're getting from Gen Z okay so i you know i don't they may be good for us yet even if we don't necessarily like them along the way or kind of surprised by them along the way um, so I can see why being a trustee of people's time would be make you a valued manager and I think about all the financial services Absolutely. where people are left sitting all day with nothing to do email comes in at eleven o'clock and I need this by 8 a.m in the morning so right you're not a good trustee of time
2: that's right you know and I, I think you make a really astute uh, observation when you say that for leaders to be trustee of and employee's time, it actually fits in with the zeitgeist because the psychological contract is changing. See, previously the psychological contract, particularly after the pandemic, pre-pandemic, the psychological contract, was: hey, you know, I'll come to work and you pay me for my time and skills. You can punish me, promote me, fire me. Now people are saying, you know, wait, particularly the millennials and succeeding generations, when they come to organizations, they want to have impact. They don't want to be bottled up and caged. And that's the problem. So once you think you're a trustee of other people's time, when you make it easier for them to have impact, you know, that creates, I think, the psychological contract. People always say, oh, my God, you know, we, we went remote and now people aren't coming back to work. Uh, you know, I'm often wondering, why would we expect, you expect know, people <laughs> to want to come back to work? Because they got to deal with a lot of bullshit at work,
1: too. <laughs> <laughs> One of my colleagues says, right, you want people to come back to work. They're going to commute in for an hour or more, depending on the city that they're exactly." Going. They're going to hassle to get into the building, courtesy of security, or parking, or whatever else it takes. Exactly. They're going to come up and sit at their desk. They're going to sit at their desk and do emails all day. Right. But why would you come to the building? That's right.
2: So you- That's exactly right. And so, you know, the point is we need to reimagine the world of work. And if you make the right things easy to do, of course people would sh- be more willing to show up for work. Okay. Sadly, organizations make the right things damn hard to do, and the wrong things easy to do, and that's the problem.
1: That's a problem. All right, fine. I get the sense of this. I love that uh, this notion that leaders are trustees of other people's time. I think that's an important component as we move forward in building great leadership. I want to dig in about the causes. Like, I don't think Absolutely. any leader gets up in the morning and says, let me see how hard I can make it for people to do the stuff that I really need them to do. So this stuff feels like weeds to me. It just grows up out of nowhere and nobody's tending it. So what have you and Bob found are the main causes? Let's take each of them. I want to kind of get a little explanation for them, and then we'll go back to talk about what do I do about
2: it. Absolutely. So Bob and I, in the book, uh, The Friction Project, we talk about five on-ramps. Uh, these are on-ramps to the world of bad friction. So, uh, you know, I'm going to give you a couple of quick uh, sum- summaries of each of these causes so our listeners get a quick idea. The first thing is uh, oblivious or out-of-touch leader. So leaders become out of touch for a variety of uh, considerations, but the two for us that matter is there is actually a long line of research that sadly suggests that the more powerful we feel or indeed are, are, we search less and therefore we have tunnel vision. Who searches in an organization? People who don't have power. Hey, how did that thing happen to me? I mean, you've got to figure things out. If you have power, you're the environment for other people and you face very little uncertainty. And so, therefore, you don't search much. One study and a number of growing studies, they uh, finger another cause. And the other cause is in large companies, leaders often don't know how work gets done three levels beneath. So if you really don't know how work's getting done three levels beneath you, you quickly conclude it's very easy to coordinate. Mm -hmm. But the problem is we underestimate coordination difficulties or bad friction problems. So when both those kind of combine, you actually have, uh, you know, an organization kind of often overrun with weeds. So the question is, what should leaders do you know and maybe we'll come to that again uh, perhaps in another section when we kind well, of look
1: well, at let's this. let's take it now while we're on it because i'm not just so, make a comment even in my organization i only have one layer for me but i can way underestimate how complicated it is absolutely done, that in my head is one two right. three but right. i miss so, one and a half, one and three quarters, one and seven, one—you know—all of those other steps. I miss them.
2: That's right. And so I think um, the 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 challenge for leaders is, if I can put it simply, leaders have to transition from being a hippopotamus to an elephant. Okay. See, when we think of a hippopotamus, I mean, visualize the face of a hippopotamus. I mean, what's the first thing that leaps out at you? Yeah. Huge mouth. Very small ears and very small eyes. That's kind of what a lot of leaders do. They're like the hippo; they use their mouth, in telling people what to do. Instead, what we really need to do is, we need to be elephants. And you know what elephants kind of do is—I mean, as you know, big ears, huge trunk, big eyes. And it's a simple way of saying leaders should actually change from emphasizing transmission to reception. You know, you can't be in the business of transmitting. you got to be in the business of reception. And sometimes riding along, watching, and helping see how people do the work makes a whale of a difference. Two quick examples. So Tesco, until many years ago, uh, since many years, uh, one of the practices they have is once a week, the entire top management team spends a week doing frontline jobs in the store and you can imagine you can quickly identify sources of bad friction i was talking to an executive and he was doing he was doing this and one of the things he realizes is, oh, my God, there's a line building out of the cash register because he was manning the cash register. His first diagnosis was, oh, my God, I'm the cause of the thing. And then he realized what's happening is when people slide the packages they've bought across that little conveyor belt, the barcode was only on one side of the package. So often he had to flip it over and that was taking more time. Now, here's a guy who's a senior person who comes in and says, you know what? Might actually be a useful thing to barcode both sides. Of a package and <laughs> save time for the customer, so that's like a great example to me of being really an effective elephant.
1: So I want to listen, I want to sniff out what might Absolutely. be happening, but I want to go and watch. I want to exactly. see what it takes right. to do the jobs. I want to, and you can even ask, even if you're not an expert on it. You know, going and ask the engineerings what's causing you pain in yeah. your job is a great way of figuring out where the friction is and then, therefore, what you might be able to do about it.
2: That's, um, you know, absolutely right. In fact, uh, if I could jet ski on your comment uh, very briefly, Wanda, Bob and I have actually talked about how when we kind of look for effective leaders, one of the things we focus a lot on are how many helpful questions do you ask divided by how many statements of opinion you make. made? So, the more statements of opinion, you're in hippo land. You're asking questions, you're being in elephant mode. And so, computing that ratio tells you a lot about, we think, about many leaders. I love
1: that. The ratio of questions asked to statements made, Great. statements of opinion. Statements of opinion.
2: Yeah. You know, when you say, in my experience, and I think, and, you know, yada, yes. yada, yada.
1: So, all right? Questions asked. All right, fantastic. So, what if I believe my manager is out of touch and oblivious? What am I supposed to do then?
2: So, that's a great question. I think one of the simplest things you can do is you don't need to be the purveyor of the message. You can actually get a customer to a meeting. You can get customers inside the companies, and boy, can they tell you about friction. You know, it's the, the simplest thing to do. Get the customer in, and once you hear it from the voice of the customer, can I say, man, we're really making things harder for them? I mean, let me give you an example of, uh, you know, customer, fr- you know, uh, uh, customers facing friction. Our uh, Bob and I have a wonderful friend, a professor at uh, the University of Toronto, Katie Sells, and she, would apparently, gone to a store in Toronto to buy some kind of cream. So you know, she kind of goes there, and it's amazing. You just want to buy cream and go, and just look at her ordeal. First question she's asked by the counter clerk is, "Hey, do you have an appointment?" She says, "No," uh, and then she says, "Do you have an account?" She says, says, no. And then she says, do you have a phone number? And she says, I don't want to give my phone number to other people uh, just like that. I just want to buy a cream and leave. And they say, well, you got to give us your phone number. Only then can we do the appointment. You know, and I'm thinking, why are you making it so hard for people to buy stuff?
1: Right, right. And I, know? Get out of them, but I can tell you why they're trying to do that, but it's offending the customer. I see it. Well, I was just yesterday with a client um, and one of the people in the room is part of the onboarding process for clients coming into that particular business. We'll keep the industry and everything sort of confidential here. And while that team may know what it is that's causing friction, it doesn't necessarily mean they can get the ears of other people to make those changes. Engineering to make the changes, et cetera, et cetera, the professionals, and so on. So sometimes that can it's not as simple. It's some, but getting the voice of the customer is a really powerful thing.
2: Yeah, but you know the other interesting thing is your onboarding example suggests another alternative. You know, don't think of onboarding as indoctrination alone make the new employees who are going to be onboarded into detectives. Hey, what's hard? What's confusing? What's inexplicable? Go tell us. Uh, you know, they don't come with any preconceptions, and they'll tell you things that might uh, surprise you. I was actually at a chip company Some time ago, and uh, chip designers usually like to have multiple, two monitors at least, because they're really kind of designing fine, minute things. And I remember looking at one of the engineers. I said, aha, you've got a second monitor. And my simple question to him was, how long did it take for you to get the second monitor? And he looks at me and says, professor, you know this company? I said, no, I just saw the monitor. I have this question. He looks at me, smiles, and says, two weeks. And he says, this place, he said, I said, how's this place? How easy is it to get the second monitor? And he looks at me and he says, Professor, it's like a bazaar in Istanbul. You got to go to many storefronts and knock on them before you actually get this. And I'm thinking to myself, you've spent all this money hiring this young engineer. Two weeks, the guy is flailing to trying to get an extra monitor. Is that like a good use of a person's (laughs) time? You tell me. Yes. (laughs)
1: All right. Fair enough. Okay, so Oblivious Out-of-Touch Leaders, where we need to get people into the search mode. Ask more questions, listen, make fewer statements. Let's go to the second one. I love the title of this one, Addition Sickness. I love this. Oh, man.
2: Thank you. So, you know, uh, there was actually an article in Nature that says, as human beings, we are biased to act we don't subtract. So in a recent study done by Gabe Adams and others, they looked at a variety of like projects uh, from building Legos to fixing a university. And you know what they found? 11% of the suggestions, they were the only ones that pertained to subtraction. Right. Okay. 89 had to do with basically adding. And the problem is, This addition sickness, people get rewarded for adding things. Uh, you get rewarded the more people uh, report to you, you get paid more, uh, uh, the more businesses you manage, you get the idea. So addition is like primed into organizations and often uh, this kind of addition sickness can lead to extreme arrogance. Uh, George Carlin's wonderful line, my shit is stuff, your stuff is shit is like a good, <laughs> good illustration of that. Okay. So. Addition sickness is a huge problem in company. Excuse me.
1: I think about how many times people have said we want suggestions for how to solve a problem or how to fix an area of a business or how to improve some quality. And every one of them involves spending a lot more money. To your point of addition, none of them ever involved, let's stop spending this money. (laughs) In order Indeed. to dedicate it somewhere else. I mean, every company, every organization, everywhere, add, 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 okay? I
2: mean, I could not agree more with you. You know, for us, you know, we we sort of, we actually wrote an article in the Harvard Business Review, it's going to be coming out soon, uh, called um, Rid, Your Obst- Rid Your Organization of Obstacles That Infuriate. Mm -hmm. And essentially what we suggest is, one of the many things we suggest in the article is, how do you cope with addition sickness? You need to have good riddance review. Uh, You know, what is it we want to rid ourselves? This is all about mowing the lawn. Um, So Mm -hmm. the simplest place to start is, and you know, Asking employees and customers to identify stupid stuff to get rid of. (laughs) I mean, like, I don't know how else. I mean, it's amazing how many things they can notice, Uh, you know, to give you an uh, instance, when they first tried it out in Hawaii Pacific Pacific. Mm, you know, uh, Dr. Ashton, who spearheaded this get rid of stupid stuff uh, initiative, they received 188 nominations. And let me give you, for the sake of illustration, one simple example. You know, they found that eliminating one click during hourly rounds of physicians saved 24 seconds, a total of when they Multiplied it across all of the doctors and everybody, 1,700 nursing hours per month. I mean, just think of, like, what you can do. A simple thing like reducing one one click. Okay. Um, now, you know, Deloitte, uh, for instance, spent uh, 2 million hours on the performance assessments of their employees. Okay. I mean, just think about it. 2 million hours is a lot. And, you know, even if you multiply, the business model of a Deloitte is we're selling time, right? Right. And let's assume they spend, they charge 500 bucks an hour for whatever services they offer. So you've got 2 million times 500, it's a billion dollars. Now, you know, I'm not against performance appraiser, just to be clear. But the real question to ask is, are we getting any insight worth a billion dollars? And why don't we do that? Yeah. Uh, you know, you alluded to meetings, uh, you know, Bain in a study found that one company, uh, they had a weekly executive team meeting, but, you know, didn't, you know, there must have been five, six executives or whatever. So the co- the amount of time the executives spent were six hours you know, uh, a week times 52, but the rest of the organization spent 300,000 hours to support right. this weekly meeting. And you're kind of saying like, what are we getting out of
1: it? Yeah. Yeah. I think, the, I think every executive team should do that analysis of how much time is spent in prep for our particular meetings and how much paper is used and, and, and accordingly. We should all be looking at that one. Um I see this also in terms of I'm a big proponent in meetings when you're the leader of the meeting, that you account for the time of every person sitting in that meeting. So it's not just your mm-hmm. hour. If you had 20 people in that meeting, that's 20 hours. That's a lot of money being used. And then to Don't ask, is that the most efficient thing to do way that's to do what I wanted to do in this meeting? I think we would save a lot of hassle, especially when most of the right disseminating information. I also see, Huggy, that um leaders have addition sickness in that they add one more thing and add one more project and add one more, you know, yes to somebody else. They keep adding tasks to their team without understanding what's still in the backlog.
2: Right. You know, uh, you can see this addition, uh, you know, when companies come out with their values, list of values, seven values, 10 values, and I'm thinking like, does anybody remember them? Right. Uh, you know, it's kind of hard to remember all of them. So the simplest thing we recommend is you could have a rule that says, hey, you want to add something, you better subtract something. Right. So that's certainly something you can do. Right. And, you know, occasionally what you can do is you can actually have specialists. So we talk about a case uh, in a company called Hoot Suite, where they appointed a czar of bad systems. Um, and this was this guy, Noel Pullen, was appointed as the czar of, czar, czar of bad systems. After he figured out it cost them $200 to send somebody a $15 T-shirt hmm Very Just good. think of that. It's crazy. Yeah. So there are lots of ways in which we could do it. And I love your meetings example. There's a wonderful project at Asana, spearheaded by uh, our collaborator and student, uh, Rebecca Hines. They did a meeting reset. So for every standing meeting, 60 employees were asked, hey, evaluate the value of these standing meetings. And when they did that, on average, they saved four hours per month by cancelling. And they actually saved 70% more time by revamping meetings because, you know, then you actually get a lot more out of a meeting. So there are lots of ways to do that. But addition sickness is like definitely a big part. Okay, all right. I'm
1: going to do one more, at least until we take a break. Broken connections. Yes, I think that this is my this is the one I see right, left, and center. So tell us about the broken connections.
2: <clears throat> see, the, the problem with broken connections is uh, <clears throat> uh, we have multiple units in an organization or multiple people in a team doing things. And when the connections amongst either the people in a team or the units in an organization are broken, we can't kind of weave together what different people in the organization do. So a lovely example of this is uh, our colleague Melissa Valentine in the School of Engineering at Stanford. She's done a very interesting project on the cancer tax at a world-class cancer Center. So how did that come about? How did that cancer tax get created, quote-unquote? Physicians focused on their specialties. Leaders were concerned about building great departments. And the problem was weaving everything together and scheduling was actually left to the patient. And you can imagine, you know, you a patient, you've been diagnosed with cancer. Imposing the scheduling burden, the weaving together burden is so very hard. So we think what broken connections do is they lead to what our colleague Chip Heath uh, at Stanford also calls coordination neglect. That means you just kind of focus on components. And the other thing is you are actually interested in partitioning, not right. bringing things together. Right. right. And so that's kind of what the broken connections problem is.
1: Well, if you think about it, if I've got an, I've working in an organization that has a lot of friction, I can't get my task done. So the smartest thing I can do is to control my work. So I'm going to put a partition around my work. Like this is my piece. Completely. I'm going to do my piece. This is it. This is what you're holding me accountable for. Right. I can't fix the rest of this because you're making it too hard for me. I see how it happens with good intention. It's a disaster as an outcome, but I see what happens.
2: You know, I love the way you described it. It's The way I heard it, uh, Wanda, was that, you know, what people do is they quarantine themselves. Yeah. And that's kind of the problem. I mean, so I'm going to ring fence myself and end of story. No, just imagine what, if everybody ring fences themselves. And so we don't really see it from the customer's point of view or the employee's point of view. You know, I mean, for us, uh, uh, <laughs> the simplest place to start is don't treat your friends like your enemy. Uh, yeah. You know, they're all here to kind of help, too. They're not your enemy. And so you don't need to think your job is to get them to fail. You know, your job is to help them to. And you know, when I sort of think of people who really understood that intuitively, uh, I'm actually reminded of the wonderful soccer player, American soccer player Brandi Chastain. Her grandfather paid Brandy one dollar for scoring a goal and a dollar fifty for an assist. And it was amazing. And she said, why? And the grandfather said, it's better to give than to receive. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing you can quickly find out in any company is, you can ask a question, who are the superstars here? Mm -hmm. Do people get ahead by doing great work and helping others succeed? Mm -hmm. Or by doing great work while ignoring and even undermining colleagues? And that tells you a lot about what is sort of
1: going on. Right. You certainly see that in the behavior of individuals. But I think this comes back to the whole notion that started the Friction Project and the oblivious leaders. I think people are sometimes just out of touch yes. with the coordination requirements that are needed. And if those connections are broken because it's to, I can't get to the floor where that other group lives to talk to them because it's security coded. Or that's, that's correct. Another location completely. Or they don't like us, or they're too busy doing something else to talk to us. I mean, those are all the examples we hear every day. If the leader isn't aware of that coordination cost, then they can't do anything to help it.
2: That's right. Uh,
1: That's right. My personal belief is that's why we can't get accountability to work in organizations.
2: It's because
1: I can't make you accountable because the system has got all these connections out there that don't work.
2: Yeah. And, you know, it's really interesting. We we often liken the job of leaders to firefighting. Yeah. But the irony is we really don't take any lessons to heart from firefighting teams. Our wonderful mentor, Carl Weick, who is at the University of Michigan, he studied firefighting teams. And it's really interesting. The most effective firefighting teams, they have a very simple role. What's the rule? The first thing is never hand off a fire in the heat of the day. Do it at night. You can actually see what is happening. Heat of the day, there's so much smoke. You know, visibility is kind of impaired. You could actually make wrong decisions. Uh, And I think the other sort of thing is you don't hand over a control of a fire simply by saying, "Hey, it's yours, Wanda." Usually, you have to tell a story. Hey, I took control of the fire at like six p.m. last evening, and this is what happened, and you know, and so then you kind of understand the fire as a vibrant, dynamic, shape-shifting force. Uh, otherwise. You kind of completely misread the behavior of the fire, and you might actually deploy people in the wrong way, and so you run into difficulty. Okay.
1: Okay. All right. Perfect. Um, I love that. I love that. And there's all sorts of analogies from doing firefighting that would be completely relevant here. All right, Huggy, we're. Gonna, I know we've been running for this one was a really good conversation. I want to take a really Thank quick you. break absolutely come back i want to talk about one more of your on ramps which is hurry sickness and hustle yes oh man do we need that one so my guest today is huggy Rao. the book we're talking about is the friction project the notion is there is bad friction throughout organizations you want to get rid of it five on ramps to do friction we want to make right things easier and wrong things harder we'll be right back Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.OutOfTheComfortZone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive, all on OutOfTheComfortZone.com. We hope you'll join us.
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
1: Welcome back. With me today is Hagi Rao. He is a professor of organizational behavior and human resources at Stanford University Graduate School of Business, works with lots of executives coming through Stanford's programs, both as MBA students and executive education, and does a lot of consulting with large global corporations. He and Bob Sutton had a former book called Scaling Up Excellence. And in doing that work and talking about that work with the executives, they discovered that one of the problems with being able to scale up excellently is the friction that exists in the organization. So they have a brand new book called The Friction Project, which is identifying the friction in organizations. You know, those obstacles that get in your way of getting things done and just frustrate the daylights out of everybody and prevent you from being your most curious, most generous, and therefore best employee self. So... Yes, there's good friction and bad friction, but we've been focusing on the bad friction and how do you get rid of it? So there are five conditions that or five on ramps that accelerate friction, according to them. One is leaders that are out of touch, not because they're being obnoxious, but because you're just flat out out of touch with what it actually takes to get worked on. Addition sickness, I think we all can get that one pretty clearly. They add on, add on, add on. The broken connections, which makes the coordination between different groups impossible. And the coordination is where most of the work is done today. There's one called jargon monoxide, which we haven't talked about, but I want to come to the one, the last one that I think we all are living with called Hurry Sickness and Hustle Mania. Okay, yes. tell us about this one, Huggy.
2: So this is simply the other side of the coin called speed. Uh, we look at one side of the coin and we think, oh my God, speed's a great thing. It's agility and this, that, and the other. You know, some of it is certainly there. But if you look at the other side of the coin, when we emphasize speed, the result is time poverty. So let me begin with a research study that we just did here. So we asked uh, a graduate student to uh, and we were doing it with a bunch of collaborators, but this graduate student got data on all the Bay Area startups. And we said, hey, use large language models, find out how much do they emphasize speed in their mission statement, in their public filings, and whatever you can lay your hands She came up with a number. We said, okay, great. Now that you've got this emphasis on speed, tell us how fast does it take for these startups to receive a unicorn valuation, a billion dollar valuation. Predictably, the more you emphasize speed, the shorter the time taken to receive a unicorn valuation. And the student said, this is great. And I said, not so fast. Let's actually find out the relationship between the time taken to receive a unicorn valuation and the likelihood of lawsuits two years down the pike. And guess what? The faster you become a unicorn, the more likely you're going to be bombarded with lawsuits. Because what do you do when there is speed? You cut corners. You give yourself the green light to do a lot of bad. So, and the difficulty is, you know, when you're just doing this, you make really very poor decisions. So, uh, one of the examples is a study uh, of the Israeli parole system by... uh, uh, by a colleague of mine, uh, Jonathan Levav at Stanford and his collaborators, and it was fascinating. So they studied uh, uh, six to eight judges over a six-month period and they made, uh, you know, close to, you know, a thousand or so parole decisions or a little more than that. The number isn't that important. But what's interesting is in Israel, (laughs) the way you line up for a parole decision is by a lottery. And what they found was, lo and behold, if you were a guy lucky enough to be chosen when the judges began work, say, at 9 a.m., your probability of being released on parole, being paroled was 0.65, 65% 65 probability. Within an hour and a half or so, it went down to zero because people got tired, so many cases to go through. They'd take a break. If you were lucky enough to be the guy after the break, you had a better chance of being released. Then the judges would run out of gas. And what would they do when they ran out of gas? The easiest thing for them to say is deny parole. They'd have lunch. You were the lucky guy after lunch. (laughs) You had a better chance of being released. And on and on it went. Who's being released? Are the most deserving people being released or the people who just got lucky enough to be at the starts uh, of the meeting or after the break? And you can realize this is really a terrible, terrible decision. So what time poverty does is it makes us feel as independent actors and we don't think of ourselves as interdependent people. And that's the reason you really need to slow down. The more time pressure, the more likely you are to be vulnerable to an overconfidence bias or a myopia bias. You don't just think of things clearly. So that's kind of the problem with fast and fanzine. So what we sort of suggest is, hey, slow down so that you can go farther.
1: Yeah, the f- faster, farther are the expressions that I'm hearing from everybody. But they're missing the slow down to go exactly. farther Perhaps faster in the end, because you may have done that unicorn billion, unicorn evaluation fast, but it doesn't mean that you actually got to a profitable company. Right. You know, and
2: so where should you sort of put in good friction, you know, is like a good question. And what we sort of suggest is we have a thing called friction forensics. Mm -hmm. This kind of gets to where do you take out bad friction? Where do you put in good friction? And the question that we need to ask ourselves is, excuse me, are we making a costly to reverse decision? Right. Right. Is it a one-way door? Is the cost of failure big and large? Then you really need to slow down. But if the cost of a mistake is pretty small, it's a two-way door decision. You can easily reverse it. You can change it. Then you really need to be worried about bad friction. Okay. Now, let's kind of pursue the idea of where to put in good friction. We've got a couple of simple guidelines. Put in good friction whenever you feel you're in a cognitive mind field. When you're new to a job, don't actually fall prey to the itchy finger on the trigger problem. You don't need to pull the trigger on anything. You need to slow down. And the story that I think our listeners might be interested in is the story of Paul Anderson, who was called to uh, turn around Broken Hill Properties in Australia. There was only one problem. Broken Hill Properties is a mining conglomerate. And the only problem was Paul Anderson was the CEO of Duke, energy, and he was an electrical engine energy industry guy. He wasn't a mining guy. Excuse me, never worked in Australia. And, you know, it it was kind of fascinating what he did when he took it over. He simply told people, we're not going to do anything right away, and he told his board that. Don't stampede me into making wrong decisions. So he asked his top 80 people, please write me a two-page memo addressing the following questions. What are you responsible for? What do you think are the most pressing issues? And what would you do if you were me? Mm-hmm. And he was at a conference, and people said, "What did you do?" <laughs> I just did what they told me to do. He said. Right? <laughs> you know. So cognitive mind field—he slowed down. A second place to really slow down is when you do creative work. Yeah. Great. You know, uh, uh, Pixar said. Catmull uh, told us, look, you know, we put in good friction in the process. Uh, we iterate seven to nine times because we want to make something great. Uh, okay. And Jerry Seinfeld put it really nicely. He says, hey, you're writing comedy. He said, if you're efficient, you're doing it the wrong way. And Boy, he says, the right way is the hard way. <laughs> there you have it.
1: I love it. There's a lot to be said in the forensics. Um, and I encourage people to check out the book because it's a great list of when do I say, when do I speed up to when do I sew down? Huggy, what a fun conversation and some really good insights and simple things that I think everybody can do. Huggy Rao, the book is called The Friction Project. What a great conversation, Huggy. Thanks for being
2: here. A lovely conversation. Uh, thank you so very, very much, Wanda. It was a delight. Great. And join us next week for another episode in
1: getting
0: out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.